Welcome to Let's Talk Learning Disabilities with Lori Peterson and Abby Weinstein. Lori and Abby spend their days talking about dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and ADHD. They talk to parents of struggling students and adults who have had a lifetime of academic challenges. They want to share those stories along with their own insights with you. So, let's talk learning disabilities. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Learning Disabilities. So last episode, you listened to Abby and I talk a little bit about visual processing disorders, and we gave you a a fast overview of what they are and what we see um, and, and how they're diagnosed. But today, I am super excited to tell you that I have the guru of visual processing disorders, Dr. Charles Shidlovsky, on our show. He is going to tell us everything he knows about visual processing and give you some real insights into how it's diagnosed. Um, he is known as Dr. S to us. So Dr. S is going to tell us a little bit about his background and how he got into this and then talk to you about his practice and the kinds of students he sees, um, how they diagnose visual processing disorders. We're going to talk about um, how they treat them. And then I'm excited for him to share a little bit about um, what else he does and outside of just these learning related vision issues, what other types of things does he treat. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Dr. Charles Shidlovsky. So my name is Lori Peterson, and welcome back to Let's Talk Learning Disabilities. Today, I am very excited to have Dr. Charles Shidlovsky, who we refer to as Dr. S. That's who he is to us. Um, He owns and runs NeuroVision Associates of North Texas here in Dallas, and I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about what he does and where his specialties lie. Well, thank you, Lori. I'm glad to do that. Um, uh, Largely, uh, I've got involved in working with children with uh, visual processing disorders a long, long time ago. And and the reason is because I had a learning processing disability. I didn't know that. When I started, yes. Um, So, uh, and I went all the way through school and even all the way through college struggling uh, with visual issues. And, um, And then ultimately, when I was my first year of optometry school, uh, what, what ended up happening, they discovered the, the visual processing issue and they, they sent me to vision therapy clinic. And I said, what is vision therapy? I didn't even know what it was. Right. And, um, so I actually ended up doing vision therapy, uh, through my first year, probably allowed me to survive optometry school right. at that. So that was really kind of how I got involved in it years and years ago. Um, and then when I got out of school and started pra- in practice, I, I started, uh, once I, f- I, I learned more and I figured out more things and I figured out how to fix myself even better. Right. And then I, when people would come in to see me and I, and I detect this, I'd say, okay, let's do something about this. And we, and we, and we, and we start making them better. And then what actually evolved is that we developed a lot of referrals from people who we were able to help. And then, and, and then soon after we had speech pathologists and occupational therapists and f- physical therapists and all sorts of people and educational diagnosticians. I know we, you and I met, gosh, it was 17 years ago. A long time ago. Um, and, and we, we met and we, and we saw, we saw what each other did and, and that allowed us to be able to refer back and forth to each other to, to, to help children who are having problems. 
The other thing, some of the other things that we do in our office is we work a lot with traumatic and acquired brain injury. So we see a lot of patients with concussion or strokes or traumatic brain injuries. Um, because at the end of the day, a vision processing problem is a vision processing problem, whether it's a developmental problem like it is with many of our children or a um or a, a, an acquired problem like a traumatic injury, um, we still have to fix the underlying visual right. processing issues. So there's not a whole lot of difference in treating those those populations, with a few exceptions. So that's that's another fact thing of that we do. Um, a third thing that we we do also is we have that child who's becoming myopic or nearsighted, oh. and their myopia is progressing. Um, one and of what the, is myopia? Myopia is, is nearsighted. Is nearsighted, okay. Right, so they can't see far away. They're having trouble seeing the board at school. You keep getting stronger glasses. Each time you go into the eye doctor, they're giving you stronger and stronger glasses. But now there's ways to slow the process down. Oh. And so we're doing some, uh, some skills and some techniques to help slow down the process of myopia. Um, and part of what we have in our practice, we, we opened a, what we call the treehouse room. And in our treehouse room, you come in and we, we work with... Uh, with children to slow down the progression of their myopia uh, using these very techniques that we have. That's awesome. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, which now I am going to change gears a little bit. So I wanted to talk about the symptoms that we see that then we want to send kids to you or we've sent adults as well. But I want to know what were your symptoms? Because I did not realize you had visual processing issues. So when you were going through school, what it was, what was your main struggle? My main struggle is I would um, I would basically fall asleep in my book after about twenty minutes of reading. Oh, really? So it was just I would read and, and, and I find myself waking up in, in the middle of a chapter or, or in the middle of doing something. That could be a problem. Um, so for, for me, it was it was really I would I would get the fatigue situation pretty badly. The other thing that I had was. I didn't have a problem with comprehension as much as I had a problem with, I would fi- I found myself rereading lines a lot mm-hmm. or go, having to go back or, uh, of course, the, then the other aspects are mind wandering. Sure. Um, l- largely probably had ADD before, you know, before we really diagnosed it, never mm-hmm. took any treatment for that. Uh, probably, and I also had sensory processing disorders. Wow! Because I know I always had sensitivities to things like tags and labels and things mm-hmm. of that nature. So, and of course, as you know, AD, ADD, ADHD, and sensory processing disorders run hand in hand yep. quite frequently. Yep. Um, and a lot, and believe it or not, these visual processing problems also run pretty concurrent with sensory processing disorders that as a sense. whole. So. Um, you kind of package the whole thing together, and that's that. That ended up being my my specific issue, but obviously, we can see these types of problems up to about twenty percent of all school age children. So that's the important thing to understand is that we have to be able to figure out ways we can help kids in school. And unfortunately, the school vision screening programs are insufficient because all they're doing is they're testing for visual acuity. Okay, you cover one eye, you cover the other eye. What do you see on the eye chart? But that's it. Then you also have these kids who are actually farsighted, and not nearsighted, but farsighted. But they can test 20-20 on an eye chart all day long. But put it up close. Put put it up close, and they're they're struggling, and they get fatigued real easily, and they have a lot of visual stress issues that they're dealing with. And and it's never going to be picked up on a school vision screening. What percent, and you may, I don't know if there's a percentage answer, but the kids that you see that would come home from school every day would have headaches. How many of the, how many of the, how many of the um, issues would create headaches or that fatigue feeling that they get home and they're tired, they just can't look at anything? Oh, I'd say we, we hear it about 10 to 15% of oh, the really? time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty significant. 
Um, of course, my population and my practice is very slanted now because right. I, this is what I do all day long. So it's probably even higher than that in my practice. But I'd say in a typical practice, I'd say we probably would have heard it about 10% of the time. So when we talk to parents about the difference between like a visual processing problem and dyslexia, because they look so much alike and they can exist together easily, but they can not. You can have a child who reads very disfluent, who can't spell and trying to explain to them that spelling is a very visual task and you have to look and see how a word looks to know that you spelled it right. Um, Those are the symptoms that jump out at us. The disfluent reading, the poor spelling, the poor spatial planning on the page, not being able to space their words and their letters appropriately. Um, handwriting is sometimes really a disaster, and it's because of the way they see things. What other symptoms do people talk about as they come to you? That because that, not everybody comes to you from us. So what else do you, are you hearing? Well, you know, I think that there, I think there's physical symptoms like fatigue and eye strain and and things of that nature. But a lot of kids don't complain; they just go about their day. Well, they don't know, and they don't, and and that's and what happened is they they've had it the whole life, so they think that's normal. They don't know what they don't know. <laughs> right. So that to them, that's that's a norm. Those are normal things, but the but they're not, you know. Um, but yeah, certainly looking at, at someone who, the, the way they do handwriting on a page, if they write uphill or they write downhill, they write extra small or extra large, uh-huh. they have poor spacing between words. That's usually a sign of a visual spatial issue. Um, I always tell people, well, you know, they think handwriting, well, you take them to the occupational therapist and they work on grip. But yeah, you can work on grip, but if you don't have the visual spatial skills, it's not going to help that much. Are there kids who have grip issues? Absolutely. And occupational therapy does a great job with helping those folks with grip issues. Um, how they read across a page is also so significant because a lot of these kids will either read word or part of a word at a time. They get stuck on words. They'll reread words. They'll also chunk. They'll like read two words, then read yes. two words, then they read two words. So they'll chunk. And any type of uh, asymmetry of that reading process uh, or, or disconnectedness of that reading process can be an indication of a problem. Because let's think about, we, we, there's really two types of eye movements we lo- look at. We look at a pursuit movement, which is like follow, watching a tennis ball going across a court or watching a car go down the street. It's a smooth movement. Second type of movement is called a saccadic eye movement. That's a jump movement. That's jumping between two points. So if I'm looking at one object and I want to look at another object, that's a jump movement. And in order to do that, Um, what we have to do is we have to fixate on the object. We have to attend to what we want to look at. Then we have to make the eye movement, and then we have to fixate on that object. That makes sense. Okay. So it's that attention to the other object that is really the challenge. And so what happens with a lot of these kids is that they can see what's, what's there, and they can identify it, but they spend so much effort to the process of seeing the word that by the time they get to the end of a sentence, they forgot what they read. Right. Right. Okay. So that's really what I call that visual information processing issue, but it's related to that eye movement because if if you have that poor saccadic eye movement, you can't make that jump. You can't make an efficient jump from area to area as you read. Um, then what happens is, is you have, you have a child who's struggling with reading. So that also is a visual spatial issue. The other thing, and, and, and the thing that's not talked about a whole lot is the effect of stress on the visual system, okay? Because what happens when they're becoming inefficient readers is they become more and more stressed. Mm -hmm. And they become more and more stressed. What happens is they tend to collapse space or hyper-focalize. So what ends up happening, and the best example I always give of this is just thinking about a 
tennis player on a tennis court and they're waiting for a ball, what do they see? They see it, the net, the lines, the player they're playing against and the ball. But when they chase hard after a ball, what do they see? Just the ball. What they've done is collapse their space to that ball. That's what happens to a reader who's having difficulty. They're going to collapse their space to what they're focused on. And then they're going to, and, and they're going to lose whatever else is next in space. That makes sense. So it really becomes a disfluent reading pattern. That One word have. at a time. Right. A very, very disfluent reading pattern. And, and they're having to deal with it. And of course, this, once again, that they're spending so much effort to just get through that reading pattern that they've lost the, the ability for comprehension. So I, and, and I had one little girl and, and this is a one specific thing, but she came in and she was wearing some glasses. She was like a third grader and she had some tinted glasses, just a light tint. And I asked her, I said, tell me about those glasses. What, how do they help you? And she's like, well, when I wear my glasses, I can see the spaces between the words, but without my glasses, all the words run together. Mm-hmm. Um, what she was probably referring to is what they call an Erlen lens. Uh, and Erlen lens, uh, Erlen lens was developed by a psychologist back about 35, 30, 35 years ago. Uh, and really what they do is they, they change the contrast between the background and the foreground. Okay. Okay. And, um, and I think Dr. Erlen was actually on the right track. She recognizes a contrast issue going on that separates them. However, she didn't take into any, any consideration the, 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 the possibility of a binocular vision issue. Okay. She didn't take any possible consideration of a of an ocular motor issue. She didn't take any consideration of an accommodative issue or a focusing issue. So, basically, a, a tinted lens like that is really a band aid on a gaping wound. Okay. Okay. It's just acting. It's giving. It's a band aid treatment. It's you put it on, you see better because you're without them. With, and without them, you don't. However. If you go to the treat, if you really want to do it right, you treat the underlying problem and you treat the underlying problem as, as getting the eyes to work better together as a team, able to, to, to do their skills better. And that will sometimes really improve that process and to a point where you don't need any type of visual aid, if you will, like a pair of, of tinted lenses. Right. And a lot of kids aren't going to want to wear tinted glasses. Yeah. So, okay. So then how do you treat these things? Well, there's, as far as we treat them, there's really two basic treatments that we would consider. Uh, we do uh, one treatment I call passive therapy. Passive therapy is where we use lenses, prisms, tints, occlusions to create a therapeutic change. So here's, here's what I mean by a therapeutic change. When you wear regular glasses, say you're nearsighted, you can't see the board, and you put on glasses, you see what the reason you, you can't see because you're nearsighted is your eyeball's too long okay. and light focuses in front of the retina. The lens moves the light onto the retina so you see better. Okay. So that's basically correcting for a structural abnormality. Okay. Okay. And that's the way regular glasses work. When we use the lenses for therapy, for a therapeutic use, what we're doing is expanding space. Remember how I talked about how mm-hmm. we collapse space? Well, there are certain lenses that we can use that will expand space and they're actually therapeutic because, and the difference is we're not correcting for structural abnormality of the eye. What we're doing is we're changing the input to the brain okay, and retraining the brain to see it in the proper way. Huh. So when you retrain the brain, guess what happens? It's a permanent change and then you do not need the, the, the corrective eyewear anymore. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. So that's how a therapeutic lens works is not really doesn't work on the eye at all. It really works on that eye brain connection. Right. And we, we, we regenerate the connection, if you will, or create new neural connections and allow it to, to, to improve. The second type of therapy we might use is what we call active therapy. And active therapy is where we actually bring you into our office and we do therapeutic activities 
that will also change the brain, change that eye-brain connection. That makes sense. But really, it's a little bit different verb than lenses, where, where lenses are, it's almost like a rewiring effect. Mm-hmm. With, with, um, with therapy, we're actually breaking old bad habits and redeveloping new good habits. So we're actually taking you back to step one right. and retraining the system to do it in a very stepwise approach. So for some people, we'll pick just passive therapy. So some people will just pick active therapy. And then some people will do passive and active therapy. It just depends on what the nature of the underlying problem is because they each do some things particularly very well and each don't cover some areas. So what we'll do is we'll pick and choose based on uh, what will make that individual the most successful at the most rapidly. I'm all sure. about... I want to do this and I want to do it efficiently and get it done and move them on to the, to the next thing. Right. So, cause sometimes there, there's underlying other issues that need to be de- dealt with. For sure. instance, if the child is dyslexic, it's important to deal with the vision problems first because we don't know if, if it's, is it truly dyslexia right. or is it a visual processing problem that's mimicking dyslexia? Right. So if we fix that, so we fix that, then we will we'll really know. And, it, and I might say at the end, Hey, you, guess what? You really didn't have dyslexia. Or I might say, it looks like you still have a language processing problem like dyslexia. Now we need to, to, to educationally, we need to uh, deal with the dyslexia and teach you how to overcome that. So that being said, then most of these problems can be fixed or remediated. Absolutely, absolutely. That's awesome. And the fixes, the, the fixes that we do are permanent. I mean, because you've changed the brain. So they don't need to come back in 10 years for more therapy or get another pair of lenses or... Very rarely. I mean, the only cases that I have that do come back are like, um, we treated, I had a young lady we treated uh, several, oh, six, seven years ago. She came back this year because she had a concussion. Oh, well, sure. And she had, so it was, it was similar type symptoms she had. She said, I had this concussion and all of a sudden I have these symptoms again. But once again, treating a, a, a brain injury and treating a developmental problem at the end of the day it's the same thing it's a processing problem we got to fix the processing problem. right so we had to go back and retreat it didn't take nearly as long because we've already built the we already built the good the new road so to speak you so to we just had to, get, had to get her back on it <laughs> exactly so i have so many parents that when we sit down and go over testing and we say we really think this is visual processing they'll say well you know what we've been to the eye doctor four times mm. because we knew we knew which is always my sign of oh then this is exactly what it is because you knew there was something going on but they get real frustrated. They're like, but we've already looked at that. Right. So why is that not something that another optometrist is picking up on? Well, I think what happens, is, you know, we see it with a lot of optometrists and ophthalmologists is basically they're checking visual acuity, seeing what they can do to improve visual acuity, and they're checking the health of the eye. And that's the limit of it. And, and, that, and that's fair. We need that. There's sure. a lot of people out there that, that need just that simple service. Okay. But... Um, the truth is, is that it doesn't go far enough. And you, and if you don't look, you don't know. Right. And so if they haven't checked you for tracking, if they haven't checked you for convergence and divergence of your eyes or what we, or binocular vision skills, if they have not checked you for accommodative ability, they have not checked you for visual spatial ability, they're really not checking you for this type of problem that might affect your schoolwork. So it's not a knock against them because they do a very good service for us. Um, but it also is, but it also means that you haven't gone down that right avenue. And there's a group of optometrists that do this type of work. It's called either developmental optometry, uh, some call it uh, behavioral optometry. Depends on what part of the world you're from. Right. Um, we, we actually call it in our office, we call it neurodevelopmental optometry only because as I, as I've said already many times, we actually are changing 
that eye-brain connection. And we recognize the fact that the, there's a big neurological piece of that puzzle um, that we we're, that we're really treating. So kind of a newer term is neurodevelopmental optometry, um, but but there's a very specific area that you can look at that we can actually um, that we'll actually look at these types of problems and kind of remediate these type of problems. But do you still check acuity? Of course. I mean, why? Yeah. Uh, obviously, we have to have good acuity, and and there's no reason we can't correct acuity while doing these other things. In fact, I mentioned earlier, we do myopia management. We have three cases right now that we're doing myopia management at the same time as we're doing uh, uh, active vision therapy. Oh, wow. So we'll sometimes combine therapies if we need to combine therapies. So it's not unusual that we'll see something like that. So I had a family um, who was in another city and looking for, I was trying to help them find a a doctor like you. And we found a practice called neurovision something, something. I'm like, that's got to be it. <laughs> That's got to be a good one because it sounds just like Dr. S's office. Right. So I felt like, you know, you got to look for those tag words and the, and the um, not just any optometrist. My question, though, is, is that when these kids go see an optometrist and get their eyes checked, are there different visual processing things, um, issues that can impact the way they take a test that they end up getting glasses that they don't need? Uh, in some cases, that I think that, that I've seen a lot of kids just prescribed a very low plus powered lenses, yes. okay? Because they don't know what else to do. Because they don't know what else to do. And they said, well, he's, they're obviously having some overfocus issue. We'll give them this low plus lens and that might help them out. It might, usually they wear it for about two weeks and then it's in the garbage mm-hmm. because they won't wear it. Uh, it's because it's really not helping them. Um, and, and it may in certain cases, but in the, for the most part, it's really not, it's not going far enough to help them out. So uh, a low plus lens can be can be beneficial in some ways, but um, I think ultimately uh, you have to kind of dig down and really test the right thing to really see what's going on with the visual system. There's also an organization out there called the College of Optometry and Vision Development, um, and they have a website, it's covd.org. And you can go to the website and there's a doctor referral, li- you know, you can go to this doctor referral uh, area and you can type in your zip code and you can find someone who is a, usually there's there's two types of members there's a fellowship member uh who that's person who's been tested they've, they've they've gone through the whole rigorous testing process um and can call themselves fellows and then there's members and and uh as i said i was a member for many years i became a fellow but that doesn't mean a member is not a bad choice right okay they're, they're, that means that they have a strong interest in doing things in a developmental model of vision, and they, they would probably give you a better uh, evaluation looking for these types of things that we discussed than some, a general optometrist or ophthalmologist. So I'm curious now, you know, I know we were talking earlier today a little bit about what you do with like the Dallas Stars. So not everybody that you work with has an, a problem and he has a deficit. You actually can help people become stronger in areas that just to be stronger. So tell me a little bit about what you do when it's, there's not necessarily an issue to be treated. Well, certainly uh, one of the other areas in our office that we do is what we call sports vision. Um, and sports vision actually was my true love coming out of school. <laughs> That's really what I wanted to do, but it, it, it wasn't just a big enough area. And I discovered early on that when I, when I actually worked with the little league baseball team going back 30 plus years now, I worked with this little league baseball team and you know, I would I, I got them all working better on their on their batting and all, all sorts of things from a visual standpoint. And I can't tell you how many parents came up to me and says, you know, their baseball got so much better, but they're doing better in the classroom too. 
And I said, well, go figure, you know, right. of course they are, because if you train a vision skill, you're training a vision skill. Right. And and so um, I, I that's what kind of said, OK, I better focus on the kids because that's that's really where the help's needed is needed more. However, I never lost my love for uh, sports vision. And I have been involved with many of the uh, the, the amateur and professional amateur and professional sports athletes in the area. Um, yeah. As you said, we're working with the Dallas Stars right now. We're working with the Allen Americans. We're working with FC Dallas. Um, and the difference basically is, is I, I could take a child who's struggling with a lot of these visual skills and I can bring them to a normal zone. Hmm. Okay. But then you can take an athlete who has, we would assume is normal vision and really take them to an elite level status. Okay. And guess what? The activities are not that much different. They're wow. the same activities, but with higher lo- what we call higher loading. Right. We're making them work like and, uh, where I might have them working on a board of lights where they're touching buttons to turn off the lights. Uh, with the athlete, I may have them bouncing a ball while they're doing that. Oh. Okay. Or on a balance board or something to really challenge their system. So they, sure. so that, that, it's that cognitive visual system that I really want to challenge so that, that when they get put under stress, they can, they can actually do the, the activity at a higher level. So, um, so it, it really always was the same thing. It was just at a different, at a different level. So when we work with th- these different teams, uh, or we work with the, with the amateur athletes or the pro athletes. Uh, right now, I have a professional baseball player we're working with. Um, we, we have a, we have a couple of high school athletes who are either in. I have one in baseball, one in lacrosse, one in. Oh, I'm trying to think. Oh, one soccer player right now. So we got about six or seven athletes we're working with right at the moment. Uh, beside the the teams uh, uh, outside the teams that we we're working on, and, and basically enhancement of that sports skill because you know think about it this way you know people go to these uh, say say they are a, a high school hockey player they may go to a to, to work with a coach to work on their skills but they don't really focus on the vision aspect no and of course what do they always say keep your eye on the puck right <laughs> and and uh, but it's not so simple because the puck's moving sure or if you're a basketball player same same idea i, I can dribble i'm faster than everyone i can but I always miss the guy on the passing lane because I can't, spatially I can't see them. Okay, those type of skills are what things that can be enhanced. The reaction time, those are skills that can be enhanced. So there's so much that we can do with an athlete that to improve their skills. So outside of, I know we talked a little bit earlier about dyslexia and and, um, visual processing issues looking so similar. What else do people come to you that have either been, that have been a misdiagnosis? Well, obviously, dyslexia is a big one. That's a big one. Um, ADD, ADHD, that's another big one. In fact, it's kind of how I kind of kind of melded into this and got started with it is trying to understand ADD or ADHD and what they what it really was and first what what they what they said it was. Um, there was a lot of questions I always had about it. Like, for instance, why would you give a hyperactive child a stimulant? Right. Well. I realized it really wasn't that they were that they were overstimulated. They they were overstimulating to to come to, to actually normalize their system. Right, they're actually understimulated. <laughs> they're actually understimulated, <laughs> and you they overstimulate. And so so what I had to figure out to do from a visual standpoint is figure out what what how does it affect the visual system? And then I started thinking about 
Well, it seems like these ADHD kids, they, they love to play video games, but they can't sit and read a book for five minutes. So what's the difference? Why can't I have the attention for one and not have it for something else? And I realized that when you're playing, uh, reading a book, it's black and white, it's high contrast, there's no movement. But in a video game, they're looking at something centrally, but they're being aware of stuff going on peripherally. Mm -hmm. So I realized if I change the peripheral visual system, if I open up that peripheral vision system, I can stabilize the system. And that's why when we do vision therapy, oftentimes we can improve symptoms of attention issues that pretty significantly. Really? Yes. So if I have kiddos that are struggling with attention, I don't necessarily suspect a visual processing issue, but they hate to read. Mm -hmm. There might be something you can do to help. Quite possibly. It's worth looking into. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, Some other things that we see, um, I see a a lot of um, younger children who have an eye turn, you know, uh, anisotropia or an exotropia. Um, It's like a lazy eye, right? Yeah, lazy eye. Sometimes they've had surgery. Sometimes they haven't had surgery, but I've seen them both ways. Um, and they're still having that eye turn, or they're, they're not capable of seeing 2020, um, which is what we call a lazy eye, an eye that's not capable of seeing 2020. And we can do some, some activities to improve their vision, uh, improve their ability to use both eyes together as a team. Because typically, when you have a lazy eye, um, what happens is you don't, um, you don't, you basically your brain turns off the image from that eye. It's called oh. suppression. So huh. your, your brain suppresses the image, only uses the clear image because you have trying to mix a clear and a blurry image. You can't. Your brain won't do it. Mm-hmm. But if we can teach the brain to to utilize that image from the weaker eye, I sometimes I call it the bully eye. If you think about it, it's like one eye is a bully and one eye is not is the weakling, and you have to kind of equalize them so they right. so so you know uh, it's it's a fair fight after that. Right. And, and that's really what it comes down to is we strengthen the weaker eye, get them get them to closer to equal strength, and then they start they start wanting to work together. That's awesome. And so there's a lot of things we can do for amblyopia uh, and then strabismus is an eye turn. So um, that those are a couple of other areas. But we've seen people with, with genetic disorders. We've seen people with um, infectious diseases. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that, that affect their the neurology of vision. Um, Lyme's disease, things of that nature that we've seen quite a few people. Um, and that goes for adults, too. I mean, we've seen right. a, a lot of adult Lyme patients. We've seen, um, obviously... Then you also have your whole side of your neurological issues, which could be um, anything. Anxiety and depression can also be things that can affect the visual system. So there's so many different aspects of the things that we actually get to do. And we and and it's it's amazing that you you kind of learn as you go. There there are there are so many things that we can do to help people, because don't forget, 80 percent of all the sensory information goes through the visual system. So once you start understanding that, that anything neurologic is, has the potential of affecting the, the, the eyes. So if somebody is not struggling with reading, because I know reading is the easy one, we have, we've actually had lots of students that we see read fine, but it affects their math. It's something about the up and down of right. the calculations, right? But outside of academics, what are some red flags that, that people, either in my own, in myself or in my children, that I should be watching for? Well, certainly it's red flags. The typical red flags that we say is um, they, they fall asleep easily when reading. Uh, they cover an eye when reading. Um, they turn their head to the side um, uh, a lot, or they use one, one side of their head. You know, they'll turn their head to the right to use their right, right-sided vision. Mm-hmm. Um, if they uh, tend to, uh, if you ever notice an eye turn or cross or 
go, even an eye going outward mm-hmm. as far as that goes. Um, frequent headaches, uh, eye pain, things of that nature. Rubbing eyes. Rubbing eyes. You know, anything like that can be an indication of a visual issue without having an acuity issue. Right. And that's where it separates. It doesn't necessarily mean they can't see. The other one is I hear a lot is because they get referred by the school nurses all the time for this. Well, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's standing real close to the TV. Okay. And, and that is, uh, the truth is, is I don't really believe that's oftentimes acuity based because there are so many kids I've seen over the years, they get referred because they stand close to the TV and guess what happens? They can see 2020. But the real problem is what they're seeking is motion. Okay. And the, and getting close to the TV, their, their system can seek motion. Don't forget we don't go outdoors enough anymore. Mm-mm. We used to go outdoors a lot more. And, and we've lost that three-dimensionality because a TV, while it looks three-dimensional, it's not really three-dimensional, it's two-dimensional. And your brain always seeks motion. Motion gives your brain stability it's, and it's mediated by the peripheral part of your retina. And what happens is, is that when you get close to the TV, you're actually stimulating more of that peripheral retina. So it calms the system. So I think it's really important if you're not going to be outdoors, uh, um, uh, I think it's really important to consider uh, some of these visual processing issues. Another interesting point about being outdoors, there's a new study now, and this goes back to what we talked about with nearsightedness, Mm -hmm. that kids that go outdoors more than two hours per day have a much lower rate of nearsightedness than kids who are indoors, mostly indoors. Um, so that's another good reason to get your children outdoors. So have you noticed now in kind of the age of COVID and everybody's online and Zooming and kids are doing online school, are you noticing more issues because kids are staring at a computer all day? Absolutely. I can't no imagine. No question about it. We have and not only kids, adults. Adults, sure. Okay. We have these kids, the adults working from home that are coming and complaining about eye strain, eye fatigue, but kids certainly. Um, and there's a little simple rule I tell patients all the time. I call it the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, look at 20 feet for 20 seconds. Okay. Because don't forget what mediates, what controls your focusing ability is muscles. And if you, t- if, let me ask you, if you, if you held a 20 pound weight in your arm for 30 minutes, how would your arm feel? Very tired. Very tired. So that's that's same thing with your eyes. Your eyes are going to feel tired if you if you continue holding on to something for a long time periods. Can it create a problem? The staring at the computer all day can it create a problem that then you have to unwind? Certainly, it can. Obviously, you you can have all sorts of situations um, where, where the, the focusing system gets overwhound, um, and even if you had a, a mild convergence or divergence issue, it can it can make it much more severe. And of course, the big one is headaches. Um, you know, a lot of people will come, come, come in and complaining about headaches right now. I can understand that. So how can people find you? How can people learn more about what you do? Um, well, certainly the, the, the easiest ways to find us is, our, first of all, our phone number is 972-312-0177. Certainly call our office and we can talk to you. Our website is neurovisionassociates.com. Or the easier way to do it is dr-s.net. Dr. S. Yeah, Dr. Dash S. Dr. Dash is the easier way to do it. Um, and uh, you can certainly uh, um, you can certainly utilize that and uh, take a look at the website. We have information about all the areas we talked about today, from sports vision to myopia management to uh, vision therapy to and it really kind of covers the areas very closely. And you had list, you had given me the other website, which I use all the time too, for if you're not in this area, which I will also put in the show notes, if you want to find a doctor in your area that does similar, that provides similar services. You at one point were traveling 
to do some of this in other places, yeah. right? Well, I, 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 I do teach a lot. I do, I, I lecture a lot to uh, doctors, teach a lot of doctors how to treat these, these particular situations. I love teaching. Um, I actually have a resident in my office also. Uh, so I have someone who spends a year with me and they go through and, and learn and then hopefully move off somewhere and, and, uh, and then teach others how to do it also. Right, you know, right. so basically that's a general optometrist. What they get in optometry school gives them some very basic knowledge, but really to do this the right way, it takes a lot of extra training. I've spent uh, countless hours upon hours days upon days, years behind years, really doing extra study and training for, to, to do the work that I do. Um, and now I get to share it with others, which is something that I really enjoy doing. Well, and it's a much more common problem. It's a much more common issue. And I feel like there aren't enough of you um, to really help all of the the kids that we see, but adults too, that, that struggle with this stuff. And I think the more you teach and the more doctors that are doing it, the more awareness there is. So that's a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I really appreciate you being here today and doing this. No problem at all. And uh, I will have all of the contact information websites in the show notes. You guys, everyone have a great day and let's talk learning disabilities next time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. In our show notes, you can find information about today's talk, as well as links to resources and other episodes. If you have questions about today's talk, have ideas for future episodes, or just want to stay connected, you can contact us through Diagnostic Learning Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So, let's keep talking learning disabilities. This podcast is sponsored by eDiagnostic Learning. You can find more information at www.ediagnosticlearning.com.